This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. If you're up there and you're telling your own stories and you're passionate about it and you care and it's coming from a genuine place, the audience want you to do well. Welcome to Don't Stop Us Now. I'm Claire Hatton. And I'm Greta Thomas. We're here to bring you fascinating stories from innovative and pioneering women around the globe. Our aim is to uncover the human behind the success story to show that these women aren't so different from you or I. They're achieving great things despite their doubts, fears and tough times. Don't forget to look out for our special how-to episodes as well. This is where Claire and I unpick some of the common career pain point themes our guests have raised. Now to this week's show. Hi, everyone. Have you ever dreamt of doing a TED Talk? Well, today is your day. Our guest is author and celebrated TED speaker, Rachel Botsman. Her TED Talks have been viewed more than 4 million times and subtitled in 29 different languages. Rachel's books include the recently released Who Can You Trust? and before that, a groundbreaking book on the rise of the sharing economy. We think the term thought leader is truly overused. However, Rachel is the exception. She's genuinely recognized as a world-class thought leader. Indeed, she's been named as one of the most creative people in business by Fast Company, a young global leader by the World Economic Forum, and Monocle magazine has rated her as one of the world's top 20 speakers. We covered so much ground during our discussion in Sydney and think you'll love Rachel's honesty about her doubts, managing her inner critic and self-talk, her tips on how she became such a great speaker and how you can too, and how she sets big goals for herself. This is your chance to hear Rachel speak frankly and unplugged. No stage, no audience, just you and us. So without further ado, sit back and enjoy this conversation with author and speaker, Rachel Botsman. Rachel, thank you so much for joining us. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me. Thank you. And we're so excited to speak to you today. You've got two such important and insightful books out in the market. You've had TED Talks that now have more than 4 million views. And as far as we're concerned, you're a true original thinker and someone who's really able to derive insights where others like us cannot. But how do you describe what you do? (laughs) 
the joke is always like, what are they going to call me? Like I have had so many titles and my favorite description of what I do in my work has been a digital philosopher, which I can never describe myself as because it sounds completely pompous. But there's something about when you look at the role of philosophers in ancient society and they spent time thinking, they spent time producing ideas that hopefully change people's perspective on all different areas of their lives, hopefully for the better. And that's what I do, but I just do it focused on technology and human behavior. And so what's wonderful about that is kind of, it doesn't really matter if it's a book, if it's a speech, or if it's a course I'm designing or a podcast, whatever it is, the work stays the same. It's just sort of the artifacts around it that change. Is it something that you were interested in, you know, this kind of deep thinking as a child? I was really arty as a child. I used to spend hours creating projects and making sets and plays and but it wasn't like one picture on the wall. Like I'd turn the whole bedroom into an art gallery or I'd move all the fit furniture in the house and create a giant pirate ship. And so I think I was always constructing worlds. I was really curious as a child, but I was told I couldn't write. I was told I was terrible English at the age of seven. And that stayed with me for a long time. Like it was one of those things that you have to shed that no, actually you can write and you can express your ideas. And so it was really in my early twenties that I kind of figured out, I want to be a writer. I want to shape ideas. I want to put things out in the world that have a long lasting value, but it took quite a long time to get there. Those moments when we're young and teachers or some adult give such inappropriate feedback can be so dramatic in terms of their impact. So how on earth did you overcome that? Yeah, I mean, even as you're saying, I can feel it. I can feel it's a generational scar. I think what's really dangerous is it becomes a story very quickly in a child's life. So the teacher says something to the parent and then the parent worries at home and says, you should do more writing. And so then you're like, why am I doing more writing? And and so I think it takes someone else in your life that you really respect to say, you're actually really good at this or the reason why you're not good at this is it's just a muscle and you haven't practiced this muscle. And the reason why you can paint and draw is because you've spent hours doing that. Or the reason why you can dive into a pool and swim is because you've practiced all your life. I started going out with a guy, I'm not with him now, but many things went wrong, but he had a real love of literature. We lived in Dublin for a period of time. And I remember he'd take me into these old bookshops and he'd be like, you are so lucky because you haven't read anything. You have all these books to catch up on. And he just literally fed me books and I just I just started to love reading and then that led to more writing and that was really the beginning of the journey. Well, that's quite a gift that he gave you, even though he's not. <laughs> yeah, even though he broke my heart. It's okay. <laughs> no, no. What did you think you would be then? You know, if you had been told you couldn't be a writer, what did you think you'd be when uh, you grew up as a child? And how did that evolve? I kept these very visual logbooks of my goals and wishes. I always had this thing of being able to project forward. And you can see there for years, it was all about gardening. I wanted to be a landscape architect, which is quite... A sophisticated job for someone to think of. I think it must have been something about planting something and structure and seeing it come to life. And I still love gardening now, but that's what I thought it was going to be, a landscape architect. That's the first time I've heard anybody <laughs> say that. I know. <laughs> I still, there's still part of me that would love to do that. It's, yeah. And then you, you went on to study fine arts at Oxford. So where did you think that was going to take you? Because that's different again, isn't it, to landscape architect? 
I wasn't meant to study fine art. So I was kind of this surprise at school that I did very well academically. And my dad said to me, you should apply for Oxford. And everyone thought I should read law. And I went up there and I remember like thinking, the lawyers don't look that interesting to me, but the artists, they look like they're having a great time. And I have three years and it's a gift to be here. So it's actually the hardest course in the university to get into because there's only 20 students in the entire university study fine art. And it was this incredible program where about 60% was practical and you got your own studio and the facilities were incredible and all these amazing well-known artists like the Turner Prize winners would come and do residencies. So you'd be, it was, I mean, now you talk about it and you're like, you're so lucky. And then the other 40% was sociology and anthropology and philosophy. So it was really understanding why human beings connect to certain ideas and really learning how to reduce things to an essence, which was absolutely invaluable. And it's the, it's like anything. It was the tribe around me, the people around me that really stuck with me. So it sounds like that was a great beginning and crafted some of the skills that you use today. But what happened after Oxford? I left Oxford and I, I went to Ireland and I worked in an art gallery. I was, I was lost like many people are. And I was really glad. I'm very lucky that my parents didn't say, well, you finished Oxford now. You need a proper job. I didn't want to go traveling, but I didn't know what world I wanted to be in. Um, so I did some work at the National Portrait Gallery. I potted around like you do. And then I went back to academia. So I thought I wanted to study and do a PhD and become a professor. So I went to Harvard. And then when I was there, I realized that my favorite professors had real world experience. They didn't stay in academia their entire lives. And so I did what a lot of young people did. I became a consultant. It really wasn't a great period of my life because I just didn't like consulting. But I learned so much about how businesses work and why it's so hard to change human behavior in really large organizations. And you travel a lot as a consultant. So this window into all these different cultures. But I think my biggest observation was how busy everyone was all the time. So there was no space to think. And this is why books were so important. This is why framing was so important. And I think that's, I mean, at the time you're not conscious, but that's what I was thinking I was picking up through doing these really intense projects. And so what did you do after that? Well, I just remember honestly getting very tired. I was doing a lot of work in South Korea and I'm someone that I don't like people who complain about their lives. Like it's, it's okay to find things difficult. It's okay to talk to your friend, all that stuff, but to just constantly complain, just do something, anything. So I started writing articles about things that were interesting to me because this was a way of sort of escaping the consulting work. And one of the pieces I wrote was about the United Nations. And I was really interested why no one understood what the United UN actually did. And that things like UNESCO and who were part of the UN, but people didn't know this. So it was all about how the UN was in this brand crisis. And I remember publishing it on some blog. And then I think it was Newsweek picked it up and ran it as a story. The story was actually irrelevant. What it was, was it was me realizing I was in control of a situation that seemed outside of my control, that I had the power to do something in my spare time that could change the way people saw me. The weird and lucky part of the story was um, I was in the airport and I saw a gentleman in front of me reading the piece. And so I said, what do you think of the piece? And he was like, well, it's okay. And 
he said, it's an interesting idea. It's, it's not well written, which was not great um, for me. But he turned out to be President Clinton's chief of staff, his most senior advisor. But he didn't have a card on him. He only had a napkin. And he said to me, my name was Simmons at the time. He said, Richard Simmons, I have a feeling about you. Will you come in for an interview? And I said, I don't believe you work for President Clinton. That's rubbish. And he said, well, just email me. And so I got back from this trip and I told my, he was my fiance at the time, now husband. And he, that's, he's, it's never going to happen. He was chatting you out. I was like, no, he was an old man. I told, I'm telling you, it wasn't that at all. Anyway, I went for the interview and I ended up, it was very, very early days when Clinton had just left office and he was starting his foundation and it was like a startup. So our job was to figure out where he could have the most impact in the world. And I had everything to do with kids and health. So that became then a really important chapter of my career. What an amazing stroke of luck sort of sliding doors. It was sliding doors, but then if I hadn't written the article, I don't think it would have happened. So I, I, yes, I was really lucky to be it's second in line. That It was a business class line and it was really long, like all these things. But I think if you put it out there and you really start to think, I want to do something different, you become receptive to the opportunities when they present themselves. Yeah. What's the one or two things that you feel really have helped you become the person that you are today? I think that I'm entitled to something as much as anyone else. It doesn't matter where you went to school, where you were raised or your background or anything, that everyone has a fair shot at something. And what's the worst that's going to happen? Someone will say no, or you won't get it. And that's it's not a feeling of entitlement. It's been this feeling of just give it a go. So it sounds like that, that sort of inner confidence has really helped you take those leaps of faith. Yeah, but in I think, well, I hope in quite an unassuming way. So it's not like I'd be the first person to say, I don't know anything about healthcare policy. What should I read? And not pretend. And what I found when you do that, people are like, okay, you should read these three things. And if you're someone that can study and catch up and people want to help you, what they don't like is when you pretend or you bullshit or you're arrogant around it. So I think it's this kind of, I hope this quiet confidence that leads to people wanting to help you. Yeah. I love that. Why not have a go attitude? You did have that potential sort of, sort of validation having been to Oxford and then Harvard. What would you say to women who might be saying to themselves, oh, yeah, but look, she's already been to Oxford and Harvard. She already has this stellar track record. I don't blame her for thinking she should have a go. What would you say to someone who's, you know, been to a great, you know, a, a normal university that's perfectly respectable but maybe doesn't have the cachet, if you like, of, of the kind of pedigree that we're talking here? Even though I've been to those schools, my inner critic would say, you're really young or someone else has three degrees or better degrees or the degrees are more work experience. Like that, that's always going. So I think whatever you have, it will always hold you back if you compare yourself to other people. So you can kind of create the benchmarks that matter and the people I've always found most impressive at the top of organizations, they typically don't have a traditional background. It's very consistent that they're often the leaders that people follow. Their path to get there has just been 
slightly different. So I think it's just saying to yourself, like everyone has experience to bring to the table and you get into trouble when you start creating a benchmarking system that you're always going to fail against because you're not in that line or you didn't take that path forward. So that sort of leads me to you taking quite a big leap. Potentially it was a big leap from a paid job to actually jumping out of the, I guess, the corporate world, even though it probably wasn't standard corporate world, into becoming an author. Mm. What did that take? My parents joked that I was the only one with a career that was going up, but their salary trajectory was going down and that these two things should correlate. But it didn't bother me. I mean, you know, in your 20s, I was fortunate in my 20s, I should say, that I needed enough money to pay rent. I needed enough money to have a good time, but I didn't have children. I didn't, so I needed enough money to live at that point. Talk us through what, what went through your mind in those first few weeks and even months as you transitioned. I didn't ever think, what have I done? I didn't mind being alone. I was actually like, this is it. This is great. And I was very structured and productive and I found a routine very early on. So I discovered like I'd wake up and the first two hours were just precious, you know, like just get it out. And then I'd go and walk and then I'd potter and I'd procrastinate and then I'd get a bit more done. And so I found a rhythm to that. I think I began to worry that nothing was going to happen. I mean, I had a co-author on this, which was a really important piece. It was a very hard process because he came from a very well-known family and he had, he had the connections piece and I was doing sort of the work. But now what I appreciate was that we were actually meant to come together at that moment in time and it didn't really matter who was contributing to what. I was very lucky because the book deal happened, you know, you speak to writers, they spent two, three years and I finished the proposal and I put everything into the proposal and four weeks later I had a book deal. Incredible. Which was, yeah. And you talked about, you know, you'd get up, you'd had the first two or so hours in the morning and then some procrastination. I know if it was me, there'd be so many things to distract me and get me to go up, especially if there was a real kind of hard problem, i.e. sort of like nut to crack and think through. So how did you deal with that, just that sitting and working things through in your mind and having that, making that time? It's like a marathon, right? I really chunk things like, so I go, right, I'm going to tackle this bit. And then it is kind of like making art and that it's like, you see it like a building block. And so I always had a goal, right? I'm going to do 2000 words or I'm going to write this chapter or whatever it was, but you have to feel progress. And then I would talk a lot to myself, well done, you did really well today, because no one's giving you that feedback, right? So at moments you're like, now I know why writers go mad. I know why they drink and smoke and drink a lot of coffee, but there was something about, <laughs> it sounds so crazy here, but that wasn't very good. Tomorrow will be better. It's okay. I didn't share a lot with my friends. Like this was quite a secretive time. And maybe it was because I was worried that it was all going to go pear shaped and then I could secretly sleep back into the old job and no one would notice. Has it all been such plain sailing with books or other proposals you've put <laughs> forward since then? Well, the book in itself didn't do well. So the book came out in the middle of the recession, which was terrible timing. And I didn't think enough about how ideas sort of react to the environment in which they're born. And so people didn't think, they thought this was just a short-term trend. And so I felt like I was banging my head against the wall. And then you'd see the 
<laughs> the story of when I got my first you get your sell sheet in the first two weeks and I was back in London and I was with my nana and she could hear me on the phone and I got off the phone and she said, how's it going? I said, well, I only sold like 12 books. Like, I mean, it was nothing. It was absolutely nothing. And she goes, well, I think you sold six because I bought the other six. And, <laughs> you know, I love her for that. But it was heartbreaking. Books are so hard. They look quite easy by the time they come out, but they are... I have to decide whether giving birth to a book or a baby is more painful because they are really, really, really hard. So the fact that it wasn't selling was really tough, but I really believed in this idea. And then this was all coinciding because I did my first book tour when I was pregnant with my first child. And so I was going through being in this whole new world of being an author and people calling you a thought leader and having to learn how to deal with the media. And then doing that with a big belly and then I'd take the baby everywhere and it was not pretty. It was it was messy, but I wouldn't want it any other way. Wow. Because <laughs> it's interesting, isn't it? Because the perception is that that book sold amazingly well. And I guess one of the reasons that could have been a perception is because the TED Talk was really well received. Yeah. How did you go from having the book and then transferring that work into a TED Talk? So what happened with the TED Talk was that I started to think about how I could get these ideas out there beyond the books. If the book wasn't having traction, I had two choices, give up and move on, or maybe there was a different platform. And again, it's one of those things, once you really start thinking about it, then the door opened. To be honest, like (laughs) the first TED Talk is pretty raw now that I, I give more speeches and I can deconstruct, but I think that was what appealed to people. So it was pretty simple. It was just saying like, there's all these things in our life that are underused and we now have this technology to connect them. And I think this could be a big thing. But then that talk became like Marley's ghost because wherever I went, people were like, you do become like Ted girl. It's like really, it's a very weird thing, the Ted phenomenon. I know that speaking is, I mean, I've, I've seen you speak and you're an amazing speaker. How did you get yourself from being what you say was not amateurish, but, but raw, yeah. raw to the kind of polish that you have today? I think there was a realization from watching great speakers, how much work it takes. I mean, this is a real art that follows the 10,000 hours rule. So this idea that you can write a speech and deliver it and it's great, I think is a fallacy. So I think now much more like a comedian where a comedian will, in every set, will test five minutes of new material and see how the audience is responding and that you're fine tuning all the time. Um, because it's not the content is how you want people to feel. And it's people say all the time, people remember stories, they remember visuals, um, versus the content itself. But learning how you can do things that make people feel differently and learning how to show up that it doesn't matter what happened at home. It doesn't matter how you're feeling. You could be really sick. It doesn't matter whether you got on the plane, but as soon as your foot hits the stage, you know how to enter that state. I think that's professional part of it that is beyond the words and beyond the performance. It's it's showing up in that state every single time. If you're in a horrible hotel room and it's 
freezing cold and the audience are half asleep, you've still got to do that. That's fascinating concept of it's not the content, it's how you make people feel. How do you actually deconstruct that or approach that? I always, when I take a brief from a client, I'm trying to hear from them what they want. And to be fair, they don't always really know what they want. And that's, that's okay. And then I ask more questions about the audience. So what time of day is it? Who's before me? Who's after me? What's the theme of the conference? Why have they come in the past? You're trying to understand the state. You're trying to understand why are they there? And from that, you can go, okay, I've got room to provoke them. I've got room to be funny. I haven't like this is this is you know I've got to be really practical here for the client to be happy and then also letting go that your client isn't the event organizer it's the room so on the top of a speech I'll have fascinating or surprise like what is it I want them to feel and you know if you got there because when you get off the stage often the first thing people will say well that was fascinating and you're like yes I did it so I think it's actually quite a conscious process and I don't know if all speakers do this, like to be thinking about the feeling output as much as the learning output. And I get it. I mean, I get it wrong so many times. I had a horrible speech the other week, but the room probably didn't know, but I knew because uh, I hadn't given it enough thought, the feeling part enough thought. That's so interesting. So many women have a block about putting themselves out there on the stage and public speaking. You know, What would you say to them? Yeah, I know it's like, Coldplay didn't start at Wembley, right? They started in pubs. And this is what I always say to people, like, I won't go and do a TED Talk. Have you ever, like, (laughs) this may not be the first best setting to do this. Like, just take every opportunity, right? Just start working that muscle because it will grow from there, I think, is the first thing. I think the second thing is nerves are a really good thing. They do show that you care. It's just learning how to channel those nerves. And then finding your own style. So of course you watch people and you say, oh, I like that. Just little things that people do that you you start to observe, but it's really about being authentic. And if you're up there and you're telling your own stories and you're passionate about it and you care and it's coming from a genuine place, the audience want you to do well. They do. They want you to do well. And Where it often goes wrong is just when you're not comfortable. So, Rachel, if it's okay with you, I'd love to bridge onto a different topic. And that is the topic of women taking risks, being innovators, being original thinkers. If you could generalize, what do you think are the differences between the way men and women approach taking risk? It's a generalization, but I think women, I don't know if I want to use the word overanalyze, but think a lot about the ifs and the buts and the outcomes. So they think more about the consequences, both negative and bad, and that can often hold them back. Whereas men, especially male entrepreneurs I've met, like it's like, um, we'll just do this and like, and they, they'll bluff it. And women are kind of like thinking more about what could go wrong and their responsibility to the investors and what happens if we lose all the money and if they have a family, you know, um, taking all this time away from my children and it might. So there's a lot more of a sort of mental dialogue going on around the possible consequences. What's changed for you since being a mother? I mean, there's the obvious things like you are more efficient, you are more productive. I feel like I think you become a lot more conscious around how you spend your time and whether it's really important and the trade-off that you're making by being somewhere where you could be somewhere else. 
I personally think more about what I want my work to do and will it have an impact on my children's lives. So I don't know about you, but my 20s, I now look back and I think I was pretty selfish or self-centered, not selfish, self-centered human being. And having children who are dependent on you, literally life dependent on you, I think is life-changing in a really good way. I'd love to change the subject a little bit now and explore some of the material from your latest book, Who Can You Trust? Sort of especially what you now do personally differently in your day-to-day life. Do you find you have changed your habits in certain ways? I think I'm I'm not less trusting. I think I'm more, far more conscious around how I'm giving my trust away and whether that's been driven by feeling or by rational thoughts and whether I'm, especially when it's big decisions, whether I'm placing my trust well in other people. And I realized when I kind of making that assessment, whether it's just sort of subconsciously that I would ask typically a lot of questions around someone's competence. So I'd be thinking about like, could this person do the job for me? Or is this a good journalist? Or, and I never asked enough questions around someone's integrity and their intentions. And that's been the biggest change is thinking a lot more about someone's motives and interests and whether they align with mine. Do you think there's a special role that women can play in improving trust or trustworthiness around a boardroom table or uh, for a brand or a business? What do you think about the innate qualities perhaps that uniquely women may or may not have? Well, one of the key traits of being trustworthy, so how we choose to place our trust. So there's sort of left-hand side, which is quite hard. So that's around competence and reliability. So you could think of those as your ability traits. And then the right-hand side, I think, is quite feminine, which is your character traits, which has everything to do with your integrity and benevolence. And a huge part of that is empathy. And yes, some men are very empathetic, but I think it's something that comes more naturally to women. And you look at sort of the skills that cannot be replaced by automation. They are very feminine skills. So I think there's all that going on. I think there's also awareness now, and this is the great thing coming out of the Me Too movement of what a very masculine world can look like that um, with more women, if you had more women around the table, would it be so fractured? Um, would it be so angry and aggressive? And I think this is going to lead, I hope, to a big wave of, of female leadership. Has there ever been a moment where you've thought just that, don't stop me now? I think my mum would say that should be tattooed on me. I mean, I think like in so many different areas, like I'm going to move to New York. You don't know anyone there. Would it try and stop me? Like I remember saying this so as a teenager, right? Like I'm going to go, I don't know, go and do something very stupid. Well, you can't do it. Well, try and stop me. But I think where I channel that drive is check. So it's not now the need to like break rules and do something stupid or just to defy my parents or whatever. It now actually comes from a really productive place. So, um, I, I start every year and I come back after a long break and I, I really project this year, but also five years out. And I'm always thinking about, you know, starting to have those conversations and, I think that's part of 
don't stop me because I'm going to make this happen. Even though it feels so far off right now, I will like almost will it into existence. So it sounds like having a bigger goal, a bigger vision really, really helps you to do that. Yeah. And it has to be really big. It's more than stretch and it's more than aspiration. It can't be so like, I can't say I want to be an astronaut, right? Like that's just silly, right? I can say I want to produce a documentary, um, because I know how to write and I had to present, I want to make this happen. And so you start talking to people and having that conversation versus a different conversation. Just sort of wrapping up, what I'd really like to understand is, it sounds like you've done a lot of learning over the years and our audience is probably in their 30s, mm. 40s. What would you tell your 30-year-old self if you could today? I would tell my 30-year-old self to probably worry less because life is pretty good. I'd also tell my 30-year-old self to find her tribe. And what I mean by that is to, it doesn't have to be huge, but people, some people call them mentors. It, I think that's, it's people, probably five to 10 people around you that are there. They're just, they're your champions. They're in your court. And you may not speak to them for three years, but they will continually play a really big role in your life. And I think the earlier you can find that tribe and know who those people who are genuine, genuine givers, like they're doing this because they believe in you and it, it gives them something intrinsically back. It's, it's not about moving faster. I just think life is richer when you have those people around you. Yeah. Brilliant advice. Really brilliant advice. So Rachel, thank you so much for sharing all your wisdom. It's, it's been really such a privilege to, to speak to you and really delve deep into what's made you who you are. How can our audience find you? I use, I'm on social media quite a lot. I mean, I write for the newspapers. Like if you want to find the work that takes really deep thinking and time, um, that's usually where I write my op-eds, but I share a lot of my daily thinking on Twitter and Medium. If you want to see me and my life, I share quite a bit on Instagram. So I'm pretty open with how my thinking is progressing and what I'm working on. And, but I try not to share too much as well. So thank you so much, Rachel. We really have valued your time. It's been wonderful. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening. We hope this episode has reinforced the idea that making great and new things happen is all about taking action despite doubts, fears, or tough times. Don't forget, links and other useful info from today's show can be found at our website, don'tstopusnow.co. And if you've enjoyed and been inspired today, our request to you is please subscribe. And if you could make today the day that you take two minutes to rate and review this show, we will personally blow your air kisses, sing you a song and be eternally grateful. Finally, we'd love to hear from you. Let us know who you'd like to hear in future on the show and what else we can do to make this unmissable for you. You can reach us at hello at don'tstopusnow.co. So here's to being a little bit more unstoppable each and every day.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.